Hello, and welcome to Art After Dark. I am Maddie. And I'm Natalie. And we are back with episode 16 today. We had just a short little holiday break. Mm -hmm. Um, We took a nice little two weeks off to kind of refresh and enjoy the holidays. Yeah, and just... um, you know, a little announcement going forward. I think we're going to be posting on Tuesdays instead of Mondays. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Just because I'm going to be working on Monday mornings through the new year. And we usually record late on Sundays. So yeah. it just won't be enough time to edit and things like that. So Right. We're actually recording a little bit earlier in the day this Sunday. Usually it's it nice. is late at night. But yeah, it's refreshing. You still have a little bit of daylight. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, episodes are now going to be out on Tuesdays. Yes. Um, but follow our social medias for the updates if that will help remind you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, today we wanted to kick off episode 16 a little bit different than previous episodes where we usually talk about our highs and lows. Mm-hmm. We thought it would be fun to kind of like switch it up with different questions. And so t- we're going to talk about two things. One, New Year's resolutions because... We're officially in 2021, and I got to say, New Year's is, like, one of my favorite times of years because I get real cheesy with the resolutions. I, oh, gosh. I love resolutions. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then we're also going to talk about favorite Christmas gift. Um, yeah, because Christmas was just here, so. Exactly. And we haven't seen each other since Christmas, so we've I got know. a lot of catching up to do here. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, do you want to go first with your New Year's resolution? Yeah, well, like you said, you know, get get a little cheesy with it. Um, mine's pretty cliche. Um, I really just want to spend more time, like dedicate some time to my body, eating healthy, drinking more water, and working out more. Kind of need to drop this quarantine weight that I gained here. <laughs> and yeah, I think I'm on the right track so far. So that's my New Year's resolution. How about you? Yeah. I, a little bit similar. So I've been like dabbling in fitness and I have periods where I get really into it. Yeah, same. Right. And then like, I always fall off. So I want this year to be the year of fitness and I want to become like a complete gym rat this year. Yeah, me too, honestly. Oh my gosh. Like I admire those girls that have like all the gym gear and the cute little gym sets. Like Uh I want that to be me. So yeah. Yeah. I just got some new, like, workout equipment, too, so I'm, like, really excited about oh, that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Working out definitely is good for mental health, too. Yeah. Um, but also, this is really random, but I want to learn how to do the splits this year. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. So, like, it's not like it's going to benefit me in any huge ways, but I was thinking about the fact that I used to be in dance for a short stint when mm-hmm. I was in high school. I remember that. Yeah, I was in middle school the best. too, wasn't yeah, it? And yeah, and a little bit in middle school. I wasn't that great, but I got really close to doing my splits, but I never quite could do it, and I've always wanted to. So I thought, screw it. This year, I'm going to dedicate time, and I'm I'm going to learn how to do them just to say that I did it. So. Nice. Yeah, and then my other one is um, to read six books because I just haven't been reading lately and I miss just getting, like, lost in a book, so... Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to read more books. Yeah. So, yeah, those are my resolutions. Do you have any books that you're going to start with or anything? Yeah, so I actually still have that one book you recommended. It's supposed to be really good, and it's actually made into a movie, right, Mm -hmm. on Netflix. Oh, the movie's so creepy. I don't even remember what it's called. It's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yes, I'm Mm -hmm. Thinking of Ending Things. It's supposed to be, like, kind of nightmare-y and, like, 
trippy. I don't know. It's supposed to be a really good book. So yeah, and the movie is directed that. by Charlie Kaufman. He's the one who directed um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, so it's just cool. very like dreamlike and like yeah, scary. It's honestly like scary. It's like to me a horror movie. Like Joe didn't think so, but it's like a psychological thriller. I love those types of yeah. movies. And I just got to say the last time that I read a book and then I watched the movie afterwards was when Twilight was still really big. Oh my gosh. I was <laughs> I just thinking that. I, I kind of want to read Twilight the Twilight books cuz oh I never gosh. read the Twilight books. Me too. I like, read the first one and that's it. Oh really? Yeah. I read all of them. That's the thing like I would read them and then I would I'd be the person out in line waiting for the premiere of the movie, you know, and I was oh, all yeah. about it. So I definitely I skipped that. school when um, Twilight came out the movie to <laughs> see it with my sister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of embarrassing now, but, but uh, Joe and I really like um, Robert Pattinson. Like, yeah. Like Joe will watch like any movie that he's in. So oh, really? If I read Twilight and read the other Twilight books, he would watch them with me. Sure. Oh, totally. Do you yeah. think Joe would read the Twilight books? No. <laughs> no, and that's okay. And I totally get it. But at the same time, I'm just like, I know that the book was good. I remember, I mean, I'm, I was 12 when I read it. Yeah. So it's been over 10 years. I know, so right? I don't know if it's good anymore. I'm a little nervous to revisit that because I have it built up in my head as being fantastic. Yeah. Like, I don't want to revisit it and be like, wow, this is horrible. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be good. But yeah. Yeah. I'd love to reread Twilight too. Yeah, yeah, I just got, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, I just got, um, do you ever watch Miyazaki, the Studio Ghibli movies? Um, I've heard of the Studio Ghibli, Ghibli, I can't say Ghibli. that, Ghibli movies, but that doesn't ring a bell. Okay, it's, um, I mean, it's kind of like an anime, it's like Japanese Disney, like, okay. movies. Like, cool. if you think of that in a way, but also there's some, like, adult movies, too. Not like... <laughs> Not like XXX. Yeah, no. No, just like some... I'm like, whoa. It's, it's good, turn. but um, there's a couple books that I just got. Like, I actually bought the books, Howl's Moving Castle and Kiki's Delivery Service. Okay. Which are some great um, Studio Ghibli movies. So I just bought the books that inspired those movies, so I want to read those, too. Yeah. So that's a good resolution, reading bo- more books. Yeah, I mean, I used to read a lot of books when I was still in college, but... Gosh, we don't have anybody telling you to. You just kind of yeah stop. So I'm going to be better about that this year. Yep. And then I'm really excited to talk about my favorite Christmas gift this year. Okay. Um. So I got skydiving tickets Ugh. from Jack's dad. That is so cool. Yeah, so cool. I'm like a little terrified. I'm I'm honestly a little afraid of heights. Like I'll do the roller coasters and all that. But when it comes to like standing on like cliffs and tops of mountains then I get a little nervous yeah I hear you but <laughs> like it's gosh, different cool... that way you know like when there's no harness so I don't know how I'm gonna feel with skydiving like I'm sure I'm gonna be like honestly freaking out but yeah it's nice that you already have the tickets because it's like that's just kind of what can push you to do it. right. it's like I already have the tickets I might as well just go exactly because I think <laughs> if I already had tickets I would do it but it's that's the thing is just like building it up in your head you know yeah I have heard it's like an unforgettable experience and Mm -hmm, that like some people when they finish their jump they have so much adrenaline that they're just running around like so just like 
enlightened as cheesy as it sounds i just heard it's a great experience so yeah i'm pretty excited that's a really cool gift i know and um i was telling you this earlier but the year before he got us hot air balloon tickets so Mm -hmm. we never got to use those last summer so now i'm hoping this summer we get to have like just an adrenaline junkie summer we got the hot air balloon ride the skydiving tickets i want to get i'm thinking about getting a tattoo this summer like I just want to have a really great 2021 to make up for how bad this last year was. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but what was your favorite Christmas gift? Um, well, let's see. I got a lot of good Christmas gifts, I want to say. Shout out to my dad. He got me a book of serial killers, which was really cool. Oh, So sweet. I'll definitely be reading from that and, um, you know, doing stories from that. Um, but I think my favorite gift was actually from Joe's brother. So we do, um, like, you draw names from the hat, and that's who you get a gift for from well, with all the siblings. Okay. And so um, who had me was Joe's brother, Ben, and he got me this purse that's, like, kind of holographic. Um, like, in the light, it looks kind of like an oil spill, like, rainbowy sort oh, of. Oh, cool. But, like, in the dark, it's just kind of black. Interesting. Yeah, so I really like that. And then he also got me um, a Switch controller that has, like, little cat ears on it. Just really cute. Super cute. Yeah. And yeah, so I think those are my favorite. And Joe got me the game Pikmin for the Switch, which um, I'm really excited about because I played the demo and it was really fun. So <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. So that's a good good haul this year. Oh, yeah. And I hope you guys had a happy holidays, mm-hmm. whatever you celebrate or if you don't celebrate. Just, I don't know. It's always exciting to end the It's always the a cozy year. time of year. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know we have an artist death of the day today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, what do we got? So we have today a Flemish painter, and his name was Joseph Lies, and he died in 1865 at 43 years old. And he worked in a, ri- a wide range of genres, including history painting, landscapes, genre scenes, and portraits. So he kind of just a jack of all trades. Okay. Yeah. A Flemish painter. Yes, Joseph Lies. Lots of Dutch painters, which we're going to be talking about a Dutch painter today. We are going to be talking about a quite famous Dutch painter later. Right. Can you guess him? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Tune in for more. (laughs) But um, what do we got for the dark topic today? Okay. Yeah. So I'm a little excited to talk about the dark topic. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about something a little bit different today. And today I'm going to be talking about the dark history of inhumane mental health treatments. Ooh. Now, it sounds a little different, right? But I actually got this idea because I have been watching two shows. One show is called The Nick. It's a fantastic show. You have to watch it Hmm. if you're into this sort of thing. But basically, this TV show follows a surgeon who experiments with, like, new techniques and different, like, operations. Wait, is this, like, fictional or what? Well, it's fictional, but it's based off of the famous Knickerbocker Hospital in New York. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So it's super fascinating. It takes place in the early 20th 20th century. So super fascinating. And then also a lot of people have been watching Ratchet. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it. Um, It's kind of like from One Flew or the Cuckoo's Net. Like Joyce Ratchet, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... um, What's the gal's name that's in it? She's in, Sarah Paulson. Yeah, she's on oh. the O.J. Simpson uh, People oh, vs. O.J. yeah. And Sarah um, Paulson's great. Like, she's I love honestly her. just gorgeous and amazing. So talented. Yeah. 
Yeah, and also the Ratchet definitely has an American Horror Story vibe to mm. it. Um, and I guess Sarah Paulson's actually a producer for the show. Oh, cool. But like, oh my gosh, I just love the aesthetics in the show. Like super cool lighting, like super dramatic scenery. It just Yeah, like, I've heard it's really, really good. Oh, it's great. Um, but this show also takes place in a mental hospital and they also perform some of these operations that I'm going to be talking about today. So scary. watching these shows kind of got me down this little rabbit hole. And looking into the subject deeper was, like, really shocking. It's just shocking to me to see how people who are suffering from a mental health condition that they were just born with, that had no control over it, and they were treated so horribly. Mm-hmm. And, wow, times have changed. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start by saying mental health has been recognized for a very long time, which I found interesting. In fact, there have been... Um, history of mental health treatments back to like prehistoric times. Wow. So yeah, that's sad. That, that was really interesting. Like we've like, always about, recognized like, that depressed cavemen. Like something about right. that is so sad. I don't know. I'm sure you know mental illnesses existed since the dawn of men. So yeah, true. It's just really interesting that they recognized that back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the mid 1700s, this was the dawn of the asylum era. And so asylums are institutions that are supposed to house and take care of mentally ill patients. And during the dawn of the asylum era, some of the most shocking mental health treatments that we've ever seen took place. Oh my goodness. So during um, the beginning of the asylum era, mental institutions, they weren't exactly known for being accountable or for curing or treating mental illnesses, but they were more so like just a place that would house the mentally unwell people of society and kind of like segregate them from society in a way. Uh, People who were mentally ill, you know, people really looked down on them and were very prejudiced against them. Mm -hmm. And it was actually common beliefs that people who are mentally ill were being given a punishment from God. So they were just associating the mentally ill with being bad people. And for that reason, they were segregated from society in these asylums. Um, So super sad. And then I found this super interesting. So even though society kind of wanted the mentally ill segregated from everyone else, they still were interested in viewing the mentally ill as like this sick form of entertainment. Right. It's very icky. And so they would go to this place called the Bethel Royal Hospital in London. And this hospital was particularly known for allowing the public to enter the asylum and wander around without any supervision, mind you. So nobody to, like, protect the patients. And they're just free to, like, laugh and gawk at any of the patients there. And this was an attempt to raise money for the hospital because they were pretty desperate. And so citizens would pay, like, two pennies to enter and it would be a free-for-all. Oh, my God. Super crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so it sounds horrible, right? But mm-hmm. the really sad thing is, is when the doors were finally closed to the public around 1770, it got really worse as far as the treatment in there. Because now the society was blind to yeah. it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it started getting really barbaric in there. 
And also, so during the 17th century, this was during what is known as the age of reason and also the scientific method became popularized. Mm -hmm. So this led to like a huge interest in trying out different mental health experiments, I guess you could say. Um, So yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. And I just want to start with uh, talking about a few big names in early American psychiatry and some of their interesting experiments. So first up, we have Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush is considered one of the sort of founding fathers of American psychiatry. And he was one of the first psychiatrists to throw out the theory that people became mentally ill due to demonic possession which a lot of people widely believed yeah, beforehand. I could see that being something oh, totally. that people back then would believe in, yeah. It makes me think of the Salem witch trials, actually, yeah. because a lot of people think some of the women who were executed because they thought they were possessed, yeah. a lot of them might have just been mentally ill or handicapped in a way. So Or just, like, smarter than men. Right, you know that what I mean? too, that too, because <laughs> women were really demonized, so... He was one of the first people to kind of throw that idea aside. Mm. So, well, he he didn't believe in the demonic possession, but he still made some mistakes. So people used to treat mentally ill individuals by bloodletting. So what they did is they thought that if somebody was possessed, they could let out enough blood that it would rid them of the demonic possession. Why do they think this? <sighs> I don't know. Oh, man. And so while Benjamin Rush didn't believe in the whole demonic possession route of, you know, being mentally ill, he did believe that draining body fluids could help correct an imbalance that was causing mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. So he was known to cause blisters on his patients, to bleed out his patients, to make his patients vomit, to also restore the bodily fluids back to a balance. So, again, like, I wonder where this science comes into this, or if they were just kind of doing whatever and seeing what would work. Because I don't really, I didn't find any information to back up why they thought that would work. There probably isn't any. <laughs> right. They're just kind of like, you know, seeing what would stick. And then uh, Henry Cotton was another big name in American psychiatry, and he was the superintendent at New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital from 1907 to the 1930s. And similarly to Benjamin Rush, Henry Cotton believed that infections and imbalances in the body led to mental illness. So he particularly thought that teeth could rot, become toxic, and poison the brain, making people completely mad. So he spent a lot of his time pulling out his patient's teeth in an attempt to relieve the madness. Okay. See, this has a little bit more of a scientific basis to it. A little bit more. You know what I mean? Like, this is just like, you know, I mean, I could see... I mean, if you see rotting teeth, maybe it wouldn't be that far-fetched to think, oh, maybe that could be causing a blood poisoning. Yeah. You know? So this is still pretty... (laughs) Torturous. So he just, like, pulled out their teeth, though. Yeah. And so, talking about the show The Nick, there's this one scene where a patient gets all of her teeth removed because she has symptoms of manic depression. And so, she didn't even have rotting teeth. They just pulled all of her teeth because they're like, oh, it will help relieve the madness. 
So, I mean, okay, that is that a TV show, yeah. but, but like... But still, it's based on true events. Right. It right. was... I mean, the show seemed pretty accurate. Well, and this... And yeah, I don't know. If he thought they they could rot and that it was, you know, that would cause to- toxins into the brain or whatever. And... But that doesn't mean that he was pulling out only rotted teeth. Yeah, he during... was just kind of, you know, going nuts with the pulling out of teeth, it sounds like. And he didn't, like, only pull out teeth either. He would also... He eventually moved on to, like, removing organs. Oh. Just to, like, see well, what would right. happen. You know? So if somebody's, like, hmm. super anxious, he's like, you know, let's remove your appendix. Sew you back up. We'll see how you feel. Oh, yeah. He removed gallbladders, small intestines. Like, oh. he would remove parts of the stomach. Like, he was really just, like... Just like everybody before him, you know, messing with the body and seeing what would work with not a lot of basis behind it. Right. Um, So, yeah. So, and also, again, this was during the early 1900s. So, most of these surgeries ended in death. I mean, they were really risky operations, but they were willing to try anything in the name of science. And, of course, without consent of the patient. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of patients were doing this all unwillingly, which is really sad super messed up yeah and the ones who were were doing it willingly were probably very coherent and manipulated and maybe not sure what was actually going to happen right yeah exactly because i mean he is dealing with people who have you know mental handicaps as well Mm -hmm. um but then so another big name in american psychiatry was julius wagner drogid i pronounce i apologize if i'm pronouncing that wrong But Julius Wagner was another American psychiatrist, and he was known for experimenting with inducing really high fevers to cure mental illness. Weird. So, and this actually has a little science behind it. So he was inspired by the big discovery that really high fevers helped regress the really terrible, bad symptoms of advanced syphilis. And... Syphilis was, like, a huge problem back in the day. It killed a lot of people, and people were just, like, spreading it everywhere. It was, like, a really big problem. So once they made this discovery that high fevers helped cure that in a sense, he applied this high fever theory by injecting schizophrenic patients with malaria-infected blood. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So just making them very, very ill. Giving them malaria. Giving them malaria on purpose. And this resulted in the patient growing a huge, dangerously high fever over time. And this is like someone else's blood that they're putting in that. Yeah. So that's dealing with blood transfusions. Yeah. They probably don't know like blood types and things like that. Oh, yeah. I I don't think they understood blood types and different blood transfusions Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Because that's also something they talk about in the NIC. Again... Such a great show. Please watch it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so Julius Wagner was injecting these schizophrenic patients with malaria-infected blood, and they would grow really high fever. And when the fever was so high that it was about to basically kill the patient, he would inject them with basically an antidote of some sorts for malaria that would help kill that in the body so they would kind of go back down to normal. Oh, Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. he would induce the malaria and then wait until they had such a high fever and then give them the antidote. And so this actually earned him the 1927 Nobel Prize oh in God. physiology and medicine. But 
you know, I don't really know why he won this Nobel Prize because it was seen that the mortality rate was super high with this, with like 15% of patients dying during the procedure. And afterwards, a lot of the patients did have brain damage because I don't know if you know this, but I think about this every time I have a fever. But if you get a fever higher than 105 degrees for a long enough period of time, like yeah, your brain like melts. Yep. Was, so yeah. it was not good. Uh, people were having long-term effects from this. And so eventually this kind of stopped being a standard procedure. Um, but now just getting more delving into the other mental health treatments. The first one I'm going to talk about is called the swinging chair or mm. rotational therapy. The heck? Now, this is taking us back a little bit. This became popular in the 1700s. And this was developed by Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus. And Erasmus had observed children playing and spinning themselves in order to get dizzy and then giving themselves vertigo. And they always, like, you know, ended in them laughing and being happy. And so for whatever reason, he saw the kids playing and doing this and thought he could apply this same practice to mentally ill adults to create the same effect. So this inspired the rotational chair, which just sounds creepy. Uh, it's just like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Oh, yeah. This this one makes me sick talking about it, and yeah. you'll see why. Oh. So a person is placed in this rotational chair, and they put a box around their head, or sometimes it covers, like, their whole torso in a way to completely take away their sight. And the doctor would just use their hands, not like a machine or anything, but would just use their hands to spin the chair as hard as they possibly could. This is such a funny visual. I know, right? Like, the doctor just going ham. Yeah. Spinning the office chair is, like, what I'm picturing. Um, But, yeah, that's what they would do. And, I mean, you can, even though you're spinning it by hand, I mean, I remember those days on the playground. Oh, yeah. On the tire swing, like, And there was that spinny thing. Do you remember that spinny thing at our elementary school? Oh, yeah. That was super fun. (laughs) Yeah. It made you feel horrible afterwards. Yeah. That's why this whole bit makes me feel sick. So I oh, can picture yeah. how they would feel almost. Um, because it was... So this would result in the patient being nauseous, obviously. Right. If you've ever spun on anything, you know that feeling. Um, vomiting. And this is bad, but sometimes uncontrollable bowel movements would happen because they were just spun so hard. I can't imagine. That sounds horrible. Big yikes. I know. So horrible. Can't believe people... Had like they thought this would work for what reason, <laughs> but anyways, some patients did. I guess you could say have a sedative effect, but that was obviously just like them experiencing really bad vertigo. Oh, so not pleasant. No. Um, but this treatment did rise to popularity after Dr. Benjamin Rush, again the American oh, that guy psychiatry dude, he co-signed on the treatment and validated it. So it was a little popular for a little bit. Get those demons out there. Right. I wonder if that's why people like call call it their demons. Do you know what I mean? Battling my demons, my inner demons. Yeah. I'm sure like, you know, every little saying that you hear in culture comes from like some deep rooted stuff most of the time. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that sounds horrible. Makes me feel... Really sick. Icky, sicky, yeah. my stomach. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so the only effective, the only way it was effective, though, to really talk about it is people would all of a sudden 
have their bad behaviors, you know, lessen. But that was more so because the staff at the institutions would use this rotational chair as a threat. So obviously, if you're going to threat people, if you keep doing X, Y, Z, you're going to go in this horrible chair you know, obviously their behaviors are going to be better. That's not right because of some profound, you know, scientific experiment. And if brain. anything, then that means it makes people afraid and scared of the chair. Right. And which causes more terrible. trauma. Yeah. Which is not what you want to do to mentally ill patients. Ugh, this is just ridiculous. So then there's confinement and this is something that they still do today. So you can do. Right. Which is, it's pretty rough too. I I can't imagine. I've never been confined, but I can only imagine. I do feel a little claustrophobic. So this one also makes me squirm just talking about it. Yeah. But basically confining patients has always been a popular treatment. It still is a treatment today um, for some psychiatric patients, but it includes chains, a straight jacket, heavy waistcoats, a small cellar cage sometimes, not so much today, right. but usually it's more like padded rooms and straight jackets today, but people really were confined more back in the day. Um, some patients would be confined for hours and hours, causing horrible muscle spasms and pain, and the alleged treatment began being overly abused as institutions became more and more overcrowded. Because they just oh, had a hard time controlling such a big crowd of people. So they would just restrain all of them and problem solved, you know, in their mind. But the worst of these confinement methods was called the Utica crib, which I just have to ask, does anything come to mind when I say Utica? Just the office. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, it makes me think of where Karen gets yes, sent in the, the Utica office. branch. <laughs> But okay, we're on the same page there. I thought you were going to be like, it's like this scientific oh, thing. Oh, yeah. You ever heard of the scientific method? The U- no. I, of course, I'm making an office reference. Mm-hmm. But the Utica crib is pretty scary. And the New York State Lunatic Asylum popularized popularized. That's what it was called? This. Yeah. I know. Okay. that's. <laughs> I want to preface that, too. If you hear me say lunatic... Please know that I would never use that word in my regular speech, but this was literally the name of this establishment, the New York State Lunatic Asylum. Um, So I'm sorry if that's offensive, Um, but they popularized another word that I like have such a hard time saying for some reason. Popularized. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, The Utica Crib. And this was around 1846. So basically, adults were forced to get into this crib, which was essentially a very small cage with a lockable lid. And if a patient was being difficult, they would lock them in the Utica crib for hours. And they always left the crib being quiet and obedient. Like, I wonder why. Because they don't want to go do that ever again. Right. Like, so just stupid. And like, quiet and obedient doesn't mean mentally stable. Right. That's like a good point, too. Just like... They're like, oh, it works. It's like, well, just because they're being obedient doesn't mean they feel better. They're just, like, justifying torture. Exactly. And so the Utica crib treatment stopped being a thing when Dr. William Hammond declared that the treatment was barbaric and unscientific. So uh-huh. thank you, Dr. William Hammond. Mm-hmm. And he gave an interview to the Sunday Herald and described the treatment as follows. And this is a direct quote. He said... It is like a bed. It is a bed like a child's crib with slated sides 18 inches deep, six feet long, and three feet wide. It has a slatted lip which shuts with a spring lock. 
a lunatic, again, sorry for the terminology, put in can barely turn over. There is not much space between the patient's head and the lid as he is in a coffin. He is kept in the crib at the will of an attendant, the key being in the possession of the latter and not in the hands of a physician. Patients have sometimes died in these cribs. So that is, yeah. Imagine that 18 inches deep. I know. Like that is so like, that's why I can't even share that wiggle at all too. Cause like it really gives you an image of how small this thing was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it was really just constraining them so they couldn't move. Um, so after this treatment was criticized by Dr. William Hammond, um, padded rooms kind of became more of the common treatment for confining mentally ill patients. Um, but along with confining them with restraints, they also used medications dating back a long time. So drugs have been used on mentally ill patients dating back to like the early 1800s is what I found online. And they used it as sort of a chemical restraint. So this just replaced the physical restraints. And they would administer the patients all of these drugs, again, just to make them easier to manage because a lot of these institutions were becoming overcrowded. Um, but this is really damaging and abusive to the patients because right. they would give them high doses of cocaine, opium, oh morphine, all on a regular schedule, which obviously caused the patients to become addicted. hopelessly addicted. Yeah. With horrible side effects, which is really sad. You go in to treat one issue and and you leave with another. Right. Like, really high doses, too. Which reminds me that Coca-Cola actually originally had cocaine in it. That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah. And I do... I have also heard that they would prescribe cocaine and, like, MDMA to people who had depressive episodes. So, just crazy. It honestly makes you wonder... If in many years from now, they're going to look back at what we do today and say, oh, I can't believe they were giving people this or that. Because at the time, they thought this was really helping them. Um, So they would really, really make them addicted to these medications. And they would also use mercury, which everybody knows is really toxic and really lethal. But they would use that to treat manic episodes. Mm -hmm. Now, this next one I'm going to talk about has a very ominous name, and it's called Bath of Surprise. And this was another common treatment in the early 17th and 18th centuries. Basically, this was like a dunk tank, if you will. Mm. And patients were confined to a chair that hung above water, and the patients would just like squirm with anticipation and suspension because they didn't know when the chair was going to drop. Um, It was just... Without warning, they could sit up there for an hour or longer. That you never knew how long it would be until a chair would drop, because they would drop the chair and they would fall in the water. And not only is that shocking enough, but the water would be ice, ice cold. Ugh. So it would just completely shock them, and it did sedate the patients in a way, but only because it shocked them so much that it kind of stunned them. Yeah. So just horrible, and this kind of led to the evolution of what was known as hydrotherapy. Have mm. you heard of hydrotherapy? No, but I, I feel like that's a thing today, but it's probably something yeah, different now. Yeah, it you know is I mean? a thing today, totally. Like, when I first looked it up, 
you know, like I, a hydro massage or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's like all that came up. Even Planet Fitness has like a hydrotherapy machine. I've done I'm it before. Sure. It's pretty cool. Is it? Yeah. I have like the membership where I can use that and I've never used it before. Yeah. But whenever gyms <laughs> open up again, you yeah. should uh, check, out, check it out. I don't know if they'll be able to use those though. I know. Uh, it's so weird. But, yeah. Who knows? But that's the first thing I thought of when yeah. I heard of hydrotherapy. I was like, oh, hydrotherapy. That sounds nice. But this was not very nice. Oh, God. Not a nice Planet oh. Fitness massage at all. So nurses and doctors would take, quote unquote, lethargic patients and spray them with blasts of water to, quote unquote, invigorate them. But this wasn't like a relaxing shower. It was very brutal. Nurses would use high pressure, painful blasts of oh my water. God. They'd hose off the patients like an animal. And it was also just so humiliating because they would forcibly, like, strip them out of their clothes and just leave them to stand in a big room with a crowd of nurses around them, just splashing them with water. And also, to make matters worse, the water was either super hot or (gasps) super cold. Like, they couldn't do even, like, a nice temperature because... Again, they wanted to, you know, kind of shock them. That is ridiculous. Right. Just this so is supposed inhumane. to be to be helping people that are just sad. That's you know? a, a that's another point about this. This all these treatments were probably making their conditions worse a lot of, of times. Of course they were. Because this is so traumatic and humiliating and just horrible. Yes. But hydrotherapy was also the practice of using long baths to sedate patients. Okay. So This is actually really what made me research this topic because I was watching Ratchet and there's a scene where they do exactly what I'm about to describe. And I just like, it looked so painful that it was horrible. I was going to say a nice long bath sounds nice. Not, yeah, not a nice bath. (laughs) Not nice. (laughs) So patients were put into a tub that was filled with water and the top of the tub was covered with... Some sort of covering, either like a oh, thick canvas. Yep. Don't like that. Or like metal doors would be put over the tub and latched. I don't like that. Right. A claustrophobic feeling, just like, oh, it just makes me feel tingly and uncomfortable. But they would have their head poking out. So if you okay. look at old pictures of this, you see a room with just a row of tubs with all these little heads poking out. And Dude. it's just very creepy. That is creepy. Yeah, so they were strapped in the tub so they couldn't escape, and the patient was then left there to soak for hours and hours and hours, and sometimes even it multiple would get cold. days. Oh, no. Well, they had these, like, interesting dials that could control the temperature, oh, and you see this in advanced. the show Ratchet. Yeah, so I'm not quite I sure want how that they worked, but, like, they would turn it up super hot, like, oh. to 100 degrees and let them basically like boil in the water Mm. and then for a long time too and so i don't like that i don't like that at all i really hate it oh my god i hate this right but so also on the flippy flip they would do no that's worse or is it i don't know i don't know what's worse but this this says what's worse so you have a hot bath and you have a cold bath right Mm -hmm. well guess what they would do they would take people, submerge them in this literally steaming hot water, keep them in there for sometimes hours. Then they would have a team of nurses come and lift them out of the tub because at that point they've basically been boiled and have no energy. And they would lift them up and drop them in the ice bath oh and lock God. that. And that just makes me think of like 
whenever you're a kid and you jump in the pool and then go to the hot tub and go back and forth because it kind of like shocks you a little bit. Yeah. I can't imagine to this extent, like, that would be so painful and so shocking to your nerve endings. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I can't. I don't like that. Also, I have to say, this research that I did on hydrotherapy, when they talk about leaving them in the bath for days, Mm -hmm. doesn't that immediately make you think of the wrinkly fingers? Like, your skin would look so crazy after that. Like, Uh, yeah. So, I don't like that. Really bad. So this would also shock the patients and this they would do to like manic depressive or suicidal um, patients and it would just kind of shock them. But again, they kind of use this as more of a punishment to keep them in line under the guise of it really helping them. (sighs) And then also considered hydrotherapy, they would sometimes wrap patients head to toe in wet cloth and essentially like mummify them and leave them like that for hours. Oh my God. So, ugh, sounds. I hate the feeling of wet clothes. I'd hate being wrapped in wet sheets for hours. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Thanks. Then we have the shock therapies. Oh God. So doctors got creative, I guess you could say, and they found other ways to shock patients than the water methods. And Manfred Sickel was a German neurologist, and he introduced the concept of insulin shock therapy to America. And by 1941, a U.S. public health survey mm-hmm. conducted that 72% of America's 305 private mm-hmm. asylums were all using this insulin coma therapy. So basically, the doctors would inject dangerously high amounts of insulin in schizophrenic patients a lot of times, but also they would treat other mental illnesses with this and basically the first few hours after being injected the insulin oh would make God. you go into like a coma like state it was just really bad that is so scary you'd be totally just like out of it and then after you're kind of out of it the next stage was referred to as either a wet shock or a dry shock mm. wet shock was more common and in this stage i guess you could say the patient would suddenly start profusely sweating, profusely salivating, and also they would be coming out of the insulin coma feeling terribly confused, disoriented, and just being really agitated. And a dry shock is when they come out of this insulin coma and just have like epileptic type seizures. Oh my goodness. It was so So kind of just all depends on how your own body reacts to the insulin. Is that Yeah. Oh, weird. That's the way they made it sound. So I guess they were just like... Yeah, you're either going to wake up this way from a wet shock or a dry shock, which Hmm. I wonder, I guess the wet shock comes from the fact that they would profusely sweat sweat and Mm -hmm. salivate. So that was how they woke up from this coma. Horrible. Oh my God. And so the dry shock scenario would, the convulsions would be so intense that they would have to inject them with like a glucose solution to kind of calm them down so they didn't just die from the insulin overdose, essentially. Right. And so this was a repeated treatment with some patients receiving this treatment daily oh for months-long periods no. of time. So See, this is what makes me them. yeah, genuinely believe that they did not want to help them. Like, I don't think that they actually thought this would help. Like, I right. honestly just think they wanted to just do this. Like, they just wanted to experiment on them. Like, exactly. Like, what would happen if we did this? Yeah. It just seems like there's no basis behind it. And also, not to mention the 
After Effects weren't showing any promising results, it was known to cause amnesia and just be really dangerous. They thought that the patients would just awake and their madness would magically be gone, is what they said. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of these convulsions would cause so much damage that the patients would even break bones. It was so strong. And in fact, this was really interesting, but they did a study in 1939 where they did an x-ray study and they found that 43% of the patients who underwent this convulsion therapy administered at the New York Psychiatric Institute experienced multiple fractures to their vertebrae. So they literally convulsed so hard. Because they were like jolting around. It like broke their bones. Yeah. Just like. so scary. And then, okay. So their thought is that they would wake from this madness and they would be cured, right? So why are they doing this for months? You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's obviously not working. I don't... Right, like... That is so think, crazy. I mean, they obviously saw their, you know, state getting worse and worse because right. these patients didn't really show any promising results, like I said. Right, and I'm sure they didn't, like, help them with their broken bones either. I'm sure that, like, you right. know, was kind of ignored or swept under the rug. Oh, I'm sure, because yeah. it sounds like they didn't even know that they had these broken bones until they did this study years later. Oh. And they're like, oh, looks like you literally broke your back. I mean, oh. I'm sure oh. that made a noise. I mean, I mean, how... Ugh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Anyways. Living in fear is just not good for your mental health. I know. Like, I'm sure it just made their issues so much worse. I can't Mm -hmm. believe they ever thought this was a good idea. So after this um, study that they did, Mm -hmm. they were speaking to more patients about their experience with insulin shock therapy. And a lot of them described it as excruciating pain and just a sense of overwhelming panic that caused them to feel like they were going to die every time the treatment was administered. Oh my God. So it just sounds like being in a living hell for months and having no control. And so this treatment with the limited proven success rate fell in popularity in the 1950s. And that is when electroconvulsive shock therapy kind of stepped in and took its place. So I'll explain a little bit about what that is. Electroconvulsive shock therapy. I'm going to call it ECT for short. Okay. Um, But ECT has a longstanding history and its risk can be traced all the way back to first century AD when Roman Emperor Colidus, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, was repeatedly treated for mental illness by putting a torpedo fish, aka an electric ray, on his forehead to shock himself, which I just love hearing interesting little tidbits of history like that. So they've been kind of shocking people in efforts to treat mental illness for a long time. And ECT rose to popularity when it was concluded that there was less risk of fracturing bones, like with the insulin shock therapy that I mentioned. So this wasn't as damaging to the body, but it was still pretty much torture. And it was also known to cause amnesia and even resulted in worsened suicidal thoughts. In fact, Ernest Hemingway, who was a famous mm-hmm. author, yep. was known to die shortly after undergoing ECT treatment because after the treatment, he became super suicidal and took his own life, unfortunately. So, yeah. So it was having pretty detrimental effects on people's emotional health. 
Then I'm going to jump into the lobotomy oh. now. Oh, yeah. This it's... one a lot of people have heard about, right? Ooh, yeah. I'm sure you've heard about it. Sad. It's just really sad. So sad. So a lot of people have heard about this, but I didn't know too much about it until I did more research for this topic. But this was a procedure that was really popular in the mid-30s into the 50s. And the concept of lobotomies was to make an incision and sever or disrupt the neurological pathways in the prefrontal cortex of the brain in order to stop bad behaviors and treat mental illness. And so sometimes this was done by drilling a hole into the skull or making an incision by the temple and inserting an instrument. Um, But oftentimes, and what it's most famously known for, it would be done by inserting an ice pick into the eye socket, also called a transorbital transorbital lobotomy. It's a tongue twister. Um, And this was a treatment for many different mental disorders, a huge range of mental disorders from being just like clinically depressed to anxious to schizophrenic to multiple personality disorders. A lot of people received lobotomies, sadly. I think that sometimes they would even remove like part of their brain. Yeah. And it would just make people just... It, I mean, fried. I mean, oh, they totally. were just, yeah. And it's just crazy to think that they were basically just like inserting the ice pick and stirring around their brain and Ugh, seeing. I didn't know happened. that. That I did not know. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like they say you know, oh, it's about five centimeters down because a lot of times what they would do is they'd take a little chisel or a hammer and they would like knock the ice pick in and they would in the eye, kind of just like guesswork. Yeah, but. It wasn't quite in the eye, and I'll I'll explain more about the nitty gritty about the procedure. Oh God! In a okay. <laughs> yeah, it's whew, it's rough. So, but the effects were really bad. So yeah. the procedure was known to be really damaging to a person's memories and also their personality, which is so sad. And most of the time, lobotomies resulted in really serious side effects. Walter Freeman was an American physician who specialized in lobotomies. And he called the procedure a surgically induced childhood because of how it rendered the patients afterwards. Yep. It's Which totally is so sad. Up. Yeah, it's super sad. So he would he would say it would leave the patient with an infantile personality. It was a quote from him. And so the hope was that after having this infantile personality period, the patient would slowly go through a period of maturation and would eventually recover. However, that didn't really happen a lot of times. They just kind of right. stayed in this childlike state, but it wasn't necessarily childlike. In fact, it kind of left them a lot of times like a yeah. vegetable exactly. is what I was reading. Like, And I even was reading that people would call them an obedient pet. Like, for example, if you had a relative back in this time that was maybe hard to deal with because of some mental handicaps they would get frustrated in dealing with it send them to get a lobotomy and now they're quiet and they just don't do anything Mm -hmm. so that was a really common procedure that took place and in one of freeman's memoirs he described a 29 year old woman following one of his lobotomies as quote a smiling lazy satisfactory patient with the personality of an oyster who could not remember names anymore and continuously poured coffee from an empty coffee pot. So she just, like, was very damaged. That's so sad. Right. And the way he describes uh, it, it's like he's not even sad about what happened to her, you know? Yeah. 
I'd rather be depressed. Than, I know, right? Like, and again, I have to mention, like, a lot of times the patients were unwilling and were forced to do this by their family or by their doctor. Right. So, like, especially, horrible. like, by their husband, like, women by their husbands. Oh, totally. Yeah. In fact, I to have a little blurb in here that most people that got lobotomies were women. Yep. Studies show. So that's totally a part of it, too. Um, and so with this 29-year-old woman um, that got this procedure done and was acting this way, Freeman just simply told this patient's parents to use a system of rewards consisting of like ice cream and candy and punishment of smacks to train her and deal with her difficult behavior following the procedure. So, Jeez. so barbaric and just horrible. Oh my God, yeah. And so this is a quote, um, and I found this on a website all about the history of lobotomies, and it's called thenzherald.co. And the quote goes, first, the patient was rendered unconscious by electroshock or given a local anesthetic. So this is where I'm going to explain how they did this procedure. Oh, God. Okay. I'm going to try not to be too gory, but I just have to explain this. Mm -hmm. So... Once they did that, then they would take the ice pick instrument and it was inserted above the patient's eyeball. Using a hammer, the ice pick was hammered into the eggshell thin bone right above the eye. So it didn't penetrate the eye at all. In fact, it didn't affect the eyesight at all. Unless there were accidents, which I'm sure there were. But they would hammer it in, crack that little eggshell thin bone above the eye. (sighs) And the instrument was then quote, wriggled back and forth. I don't like it. I don't like uh, it. To sever the connections. I know. It's like, it's making me feel tingly and uncomfortable. Like, literally like closing my <laughs> Cringing. eyes. Yeah. yeah. So they would do this and they would sever the connections in the prefrontal cortex, in the frontal lobes of the brain. Mm-hmm. And then the quote continues, it's difficult to believe that an ice pick can be hammered into the most complex part of the human body the brain, while the instrument was moved from side to side by a man who was not a surgeon, because it wasn't always surgeons doing this. Oh. Sometimes it was nurses. So, oh and the operation God. was over in 10 minutes. And at, in at least a third of all the cases, the patients were rendered with childlike mute behavior. So they didn't even talk. Well, a yeah, lot of times. they just like wrecked like one of the most important parts of the brain. Right. I can't. Ugh. It's just like, it gives have, me so much anxiety like, thinking about it. Be in the bath for 10 days or whatever it was. Oh, the bath treatment. Yeah. yeah. This, I was saving the lobotomy for last yeah. because I this one just really gets me. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people did say the procedure made their conditions improve. However, the improvements were always at the huge expense of living with other very serious after effects. And thousands of patients who underwent this procedure were left in a vegetative state, unable to speak, with no spark left in their eye, no trace of their formal personality or self. And sometimes the lobotomies would render the patients being incontinent, so they can't use the bathroom on their own, suffering Mm -hmm. from seizures. And oddly, some of them came out of the surgery having a huge appetite that they couldn't ever satisfy oh my god which is so weird the brain is so interesting yeah so like they would just eat and eat until their stomach was gonna burst and they would still like have this urge to just eat which oh that sounds like torture yeah and there's also the flip side some people woke up with no appetite and just struggled eating the bare minimum to stay alive 
And so they had to get feeding tubes because it was so bad. Oh, my God. And a lot of people were left in a forever confused, like, state. And so there were a lot of consequences. Some patients died by committing suicide shortly after the operation, just like with Ernest Hemingway with the shock therapies. Mm -hmm. So it caused really bad brain damage. And a lot of lobotomy patients struggled to ever return to a regular job. And a lot of them were unable to care for themselves ever again. And so this was before medication was the common route. So lobotomies were pretty popular. And I just have to throw in that Rosemary Kennedy, um, JFK's sister, she's famously known to be admitted to an institution after a failed lobotomy. Oh my God. It sounds what like- What is the fail version of it? I, I guess the, well, when I read up on Rosemary Kennedy, what I read is she wouldn't be able to talk anymore. She couldn't care for herself at all. She was kind of more in a vegetative like state. Okay. Um, I, that's like the little bit I read on it though, but yeah, it just seems like all lobotomies. I know, fail. right? <laughs> like all of them rendered them less of who they used to be mm-hmm. in the worst way possible. Right. And so a lot of people know JFK's sister, um, experienced that, which is really sad, sad because from my readings, it sounds like the Kennedys really tried to downplay this and keep this under wraps. Mm. Um, and they kind of just sent her away to an institution after, this failed lobotomy and just like exiled her from the family. Totally. Such a stigma. And so that brings me to my little wrap up. And basically I just want to say a lot of people are affected by mental health issues in some form or another. And just like you just mentioned with the stigma. Yeah. Today, I feel like it is becoming a lot less stigmatized to just like openly talk about struggles Which is, like, really nice to see because, in my opinion, I feel like people should feel just as comfortable talking about mental health ailments as they would, like, a physical ailment. Because it's a normal part of the human experience. Right. Just like any other health issue. It's a... I mean... Yeah, it's it's exactly that. It's, it's what an makes ailment. us human. Like right, you, you, you take a you take medicine for it, and that's mm-hmm. helps it, and it's just like any other ailment. And there's definitely like scales with mental health. You know, some a lot of people might struggle with a mental illness that they might not even realize. I mean, I think we're just realizing more today that it's really common, and people shouldn't be ashamed of it. And today, you know, seeking mental health care still has its struggles. Like, you have to deal with the insurance companies. It's really costly sometimes. And sometimes it takes, like, visiting many therapists before you find the right one. But gosh, like, what a... It's so different from how it used to be. So at least we've done some improving in the past, like, oh, yeah, 300 for sure. years. <laughs> so Even in the past, like, 10 years, I feel oh, like. Oh, totally. Yeah. We've come a long way, and I just hope we keep... Um, working on that because mental health is so important Um, especially during I have to say quarantine I know a lot of people have struggled with mental health Mm -hmm. this past year so it's something you have to check in on your friends and look out for and I just have to say so it made me kind of laugh because when I was looking up information about early mental mental institution treatments 
I uh, found myself watching this like super creepy video on YouTube mm-hmm. and I was like reading the comments and there were so many people saying, I'm here because of watching Ratchet. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like same. <laughs> that's awesome. So oh, it's got people interested. Oh, I got to watch that. It's, yeah. My mom said it's really good too. She's been watching it. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I just can't believe what people used to go through. It makes me feel so sorry for what mentally ill patients had to deal with mm-hmm. all without their consent a lot of times too which is scary yeah no but yeah so that is my topic for today mm-hmm. and i feel like your topic has a little bit of a crossover it does which is interesting we we would love to pretend that we planned this <laughs> but we didn't um, yeah so we're not done talking about asylums oh no no <laughs> so i'm gonna be talking about um the asylum that Van Gogh stayed at and the paintings that he made while he was in there and some of the things in his letters that he had to say about them. Okay. So. Awesome. I've been really excited to talk about Van Gogh. I knew he was going to come up eventually. And there's so much to cover. This is just one small part of like his whole being. Oh yeah. He's so interesting. There's a lot you could say about this guy. He is. He is a very, you know, interesting mind. And have you heard the song Vincent by Don McLean? No. Where it's like, okay, so there's like a really sweet and very sad and somber song about Vincent Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to it because, oh, it's just, it's really good. But oh anyways. <laughs> have you seen the movie Loving Vincent? No, I haven't. But I've heard it. it's really good. Yeah, it was really good. But anyway, so there's a lot to be said about Vincent Van Gogh, but I'm just going to talk about his time in the asylum. Mm-hmm. So on... The 8th of May in ni- in 1889, sorry, uh, Van Gogh voluntarily entered the asylum of St. Paul, which is near the St. Remy um, in the province region of southern France. So um, this particular asylum is located in an area of cornfields, vineyards, and olive trees. And at the time, it was run by a former naval doctor. His name was Dr. Theo Perrin. So it's going to get kind of confusing because I'm going to talk about his brother, Theo, mm-hmm. and then Theo, this guy, Theo. So Theo is Vincent's brother. Yes. Okay. Yep. So he and his brother were really close. They mm-hmm. wrote, wrote letters all the time and things like that. Um, so this, of course, was kind of a rough period for Vincent Van Gogh. He was kind of at his worst mentally before he came there. Um, he had just cut off his ear and his brother and his neighbors all were kind of like, yeah, I think you should go yeah. to, you know, to the asylum. And occasionally at the hospital, he would try to poison himself by ingesting paint and lamp oil. And during those episodes, he would have his paints taken away, obviously. Yeah. So it was just kind of like a sad time for him. But despite all of that, he was surprisingly optimistic during this time and very productive. He created roughly 150 paintings in the one year that he spent in the asylum. Wow. Yeah. Just makes me think of how much art I've completed over the course of a year, which is definitely not that much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in a letter to his brother, Theo, he wrote, when you receive the canvases that I've done in the garden, you will see that I am not too melancholy here. Oh, yeah. I love that. Like, it just makes him so happy to paint. I love it. And also, unlike what you were just talking about, the conditions in this asylum were not terrible. Um, the male wing was nearly empty, so each man had a lot of space. Okay. Um, and Theo, not his brother, but the director of the asylum, he arranged for two small rooms. Um, they were adjoining cells with barred windows for Vincent. Um, and, you know, one was his room, and then the other one was for him to use as a studio. Oh, cool. 
cool. Yeah, and he was allowed more freedoms than any of the other patients. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had the in with the his doctor Theo, I guess so. But um, it's really refreshing, I gotta say, to hear that he had a pleasant experience at an asylum after after all that. All that yes, <laughs> this is the late 1800s. So. Okay. I don't know. Things were a little different than in the 1700s, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and if somebody was with him, he could leave the hospital grounds and he was allowed to paint um, and read and just hang out in his own room on his own time and just kind of, you know, do whatever Mm -hmm. he wanted, I guess. So I'm just going to talk about some of the areas um, that he painted in the asylum. So the first one I'll talk about is the corridor. Um, In a letter to Theo, his brother, in May 1889, he described the sounds of the corridor, and it's actually kind of creepy. He said, There is someone here who has been shouting and talking like me all the time for a fortnight. He thinks he hears voices and words in the echoes of the corridors, probably because the auditory nerve is diseased and oversensitive. And in my case, it was both sight and hearing at the same time, which is usual at the onset of epilepsy, according to what Dr. Felix Ray said one day. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, and I don't want to speak out of place, but that sounds like symptoms of schizophrenia as well. Yeah, I agree. Just like having, hearing and seeing things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, he did paint, um, I think, two different versions of the corridor. He painted a lot of different versions of things, like mm-hmm. at different times of day and things like that, which is kind of cool. Oh, totally. Especially um, because he was like an impressionist, so he loved capturing the different lights. Exactly. So I love that he, you know, painted it at dawn and in the afternoon and right. at night. Yeah, who else did that? Monet? I think so. Yeah. There was one artist, I think it's Monet, who literally has, like, 12 different paintings of one building. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's they Monet. All look I'll have different. to look into that. Yeah, they all look different because they're different times of day. I love the whole concept of impressionism. Lighting. Yeah, totally. So, anyway, the next one is the corner of the St. Paul Hospital, which is kind of um, in the garden. So, okay. Um, Van Gogh completed two versions of the corner of the St. Remy Hospital Gardens. Um, he described the settings for these paintings in a letter to Emile Bernard, who's a post-impressionist painter, French post-impressionist painter, who was friends with Van Gogh. Okay. And he said in this letter, um, a view of the garden of the asylum where I am. On the right, a gray terrace, a section, the house, some rose bushes that have lost their flowers. On the left, the earth of the garden, red ochre. Earth burnt by the sun, covered in fallen pine twigs. The edge of the garden is planted with large pines with red ochre trunks and branches, green foliage, saddened by a mixture of black. These tall trees stand out against an evening sky, streaked with violet against a yellow background. High up, the yellow turns to pink, turns to green. A wall, red ochre again, blocks the view, and there is nothing above it but a a violet and yellow ochre hill. Now, the first tree is an enormous trunk, but is struck by lightning and sawn off. A side branch thrusts up against a very high, however, thrusts up very high, however, and falls down against an avalanche of dark green twigs. This dark giant, like a proud man brought low, contrasts when seen as the character of a living being, with the pale smile of the last rose on the bush, which is fading in front of him. 
Under the trees, empty stone benches, dark box, the sky is reflected yellow in a puddle after the rain. A ray of sun, the last glimmer, exalts the dark ochre to orange. Small dark figures prowl here and between the trunks. You'll understand that this combination of red ochre, of satin green with gray, of black lines that define the outlines, that gives rise a little to the feeling of anxiety from which some of my companions in misfortune often suffer, and of which is called seeing red. So he was really just associating like symbolism behind certain colors with his emotions. Yeah, even just like looking at this garden, just like, Mm -hmm. and that is just like very poetic. That was very beautiful, yeah. Yeah, so um, in those two paintings that he made, um, they're both, they both have like the tree that was struck down by lightning and Mm -hmm. all that stuff that he described. Um, So I just thought that was cool. I love the way he describes, like, the colors that he's seeing. I agree. It's just, like, green saddened with gray and, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just really cool. Um, And I will talk about next the Almond Blossom paintings. Oh, yeah. um, Which is one of his most famous. Mm -hmm. Um, And so his brother Theo got married to a woman named Joanna um, in Amsterdam in April of 1889. So this is during, you know, when he's obviously at the asylum. Mm Mm-hmm. And in January 1980, Vincent received a birth announcement in the mail at St. Remy. Um, So Theo and Joe had named their son after him, Vincent Willem van Gogh. And so he sent them a special painting from the hospital, which was Almond Blossom. And in the letter, it says, I'd much rather that he called his boy after Pa, whom I have thoughts about so often these days, than after me. But anyway, it's been done now. I started right away to make, uh, make a painting for him to hang in their bedroom. Large branches of white almond blossom against a blue sky. Oh, oh and I'm so sorry. Sweet. That was a, from a letter to his mother. Oh, okay. Just describing the almond blossom painting. Yeah. And the last one I'm going to talk about is, of course, the starry night. Okay. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No. I'm not trying to be rude. I heard something recently about this where it's like a mandala effect. When you think of starry night... I swear, and, like, I'm somebody who's, like, been very interested in art history. I swear it was called Starry Starry Night. Like, I thought, I don't know, like... I've never thought that. You haven't? Okay, um, maybe from, it's just I'm from me. Universe A, I guess. From <laughs> maybe it's just me making things up. But Starry Starry Night, huh? No, Starry Night. Maybe I'm thinking of that Don McLean song, because I think he says that in the chorus. Not oh, that I think of it. interesting. I gotta listen to that song. Okay, well, anyway, it's called The Starry Night. The Starry Night, okay. And this depicts the view outside of his window Mm -hmm. in the asylum at night, but it was painted from memory during the day. So he wasn't actually, like, looking out at the night sky and painting this. He was painting it during the day, um, but remembering kind of how it looked at night, which is kind of interesting. Um, And he also added an imaginary village. So there was obviously no village, like, right outside the thing. So that was all just in his brain interesting um and this painting since 1941 it has been in the permanent collection of the moma in new york city and let's see it's been reproduced often and the painting is widely hailed as his magnum opus and is one of his most well-known it's one of the most well-known paintings in western art um it's the only nocturne in a series of paintings from his bedroom window so he actually painted more than one painting from the same view but that one oh. was the only one that was from night. 
Gosh, okay. Um, so in a letter to Theo, he wrote, This morning I saw the countryside from my window a long time before sunrise with nothing but the morning star, which looked very big. And researchers actually have determined that Venus was visible at dawn in Provence in the spring of 1889, and it was at its brightest at that time. So the oh. brightest star in the painting, um, just to the viewers right of the cypress tree is actually venus interesting yeah okay. i thought that was like really interesting because i never I love knew that. astrology and mm-hmm. <laughs> that's cool and he didn't really write too much about starry night in any of his letters but he did write one to his brother um a list of his paintings and in this letter he said all in all the only things i consider a little good in it are the wheat field the mountain the orchard the olive trees with blue hills and the portrait and the entrance to the quarry and the rest says nothing to me and the rest, Aww. of course, includes Starry Night. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting because everybody's like, oh, the beautiful sky. And yeah. Like, you know, it's he didn't, one of the he most well-known else. paintings ever. Yeah. And he just, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. And he also, in another letter to his friend, Emile Bernard, who's that um, French guy that oh, yeah. I was talking about earlier, um, he called this painting a failure. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my gosh. So initially, so he... At this time, he's in the asylum. He's sending all of his paintings to Theo, basically, his uh-huh. brother. Um, and he kind of actually held this one back. But after a while, he sent it um, in September. So I think he... I don't know when he painted this. It was in spring when he painted it. And then he kind of didn't send it to Theo until September, um, along with nine or ten other paintings. Okay. So he just, like, didn't think it was good enough at first. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it makes me think, like... When I've created artworks in the past and I'm showing them to somebody all excited, I'm like, oh, I like that one. I'm like, really? Yeah. That's your favorite? Like, I feel like artists view their own work with a totally different set of eyes than the rest of the world. Because you know, like, every brush stroke, every little mistake, even if it got covered up or it's not noticeable, you know, you see it differently. So totally, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go along with that... um, not a lot of people at this time really, like, understood what he was going for here. Yeah. Like, this was a time of, like, realism and, like, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So his paintings, people just thought were, like, bad, you know, because they weren't, yeah. like, realistic. That's the thing with Impressionism. Like, it's very fleeting, which definitely jibes with Van Gogh's take on his scenery paintings. Because it's like he was trying to capture a moment Absolutely. You know, and so he had the fleeting brushstrokes because it was more about capturing the way the light, you know, exactly kind of touched on things and how and the, the colors in the and, day. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, Just like capturing a moment without it being hyper-realistic, which I think is so cool because I used to love hyper-realism, but man, like if you can capture that same essence in more uh, arbitrary ways. That's right. cool. And obviously he didn't spend more than a couple days on each painting because he painted 150 paintings in one oh, year. Oh gosh, I could learn from that. I wish I could turn out work like that. You know, that kind of reminds me of like what Boxy Mouse said in episode one. He just said, oh. just make content, just oh. make it. Like, you know, and you that's know, just kind of what yeah. he did here. And he came out with Almond Blossoms. He came out with Starry Night. And isn't it so sad that he didn't get the recognition until after, not just after his passing, but a long time after his passing. It is very sad, people yeah. people finally like, oh, his work was so good. And I mean, he didn't even get to 
As I'm pretty sure there's an episode of like Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah, where Vincent comes back and they're like, if you have look at Vincent. Seen it. Everybody loves your work, and he's like so taken aback. Oh, it is seriously. I haven't even seen the episode. You should. I've seen that scene. You should literally watch it because it is honestly like so well done, mm-hmm. and um, it just makes you cry. I mean, yeah. just the fact that he wasn't appreciated in his own lifetime and then, you know, when he comes back and sees his exhibit at the MoMA or whatever, oh, yeah. it's just like, dang. He really know? had a beautiful way of describing and seeing things and it also takes me back to that song because that's what that whole song is about. That Vincent song by Don McLean. It's all mm. about like, oh, if you only knew how the world like that's appreciate so your work. And, and sad. Right. I think there's a line at the end where it's like, Oh, Vincent, this world was never made for one as beautiful as you. It's a very sweet song. That's really cute. But yeah, I love, even though Van Gogh is like widely talked about, he's definitely one of my faves. Yeah, I mean, I agree. He's so mysterious, too. Yeah, and there's just like so much that you don't know about him, even if you know a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know a lot about Vincent Van Gogh, and a lot of people know a lot about him, but. I don't know. I learned new things researching this. Like, I didn't know that Star was Venus. You know right. what I mean? Like, there's always new things to learn about him because there's so much to talk about with him. That's why I like this podcast. Because, mm-hmm. like, I take topics. I'm like, oh, yeah, I generally know about that. And then I research it and I learn so much more. Right. I just feel like my brain's expanding totally. <laughs> with every episode. Totally. So those were just the paintings I wanted to talk about in his time in the asylum. But um, there's many, many others that he created while in the mm-hmm. asylum for that year. So I, I gotta say, I love how we both picked. I know. Topics it was just of kind of like I was that's like, cool. oh, that's what you're doing. Like, All right, cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. And that was a refreshing, uh, refreshing, it was a refreshing. refreshing take on asylums. So interesting. And yeah. I am inspired by. His work turn out, because that is one of my goals, too. I didn't say that earlier, but God, I really want to turn out some awesome artwork this year. Yeah. So. For sure. Yeah. So I guess that does it. Yeah, for that this does episode. it. <laughs> so I hope you guys are having a great start to 2021. Mm-hmm. And episodes will now be released on Tuesdays. Yes. So look out for that and our announcements. Um, send us emails Art After Dark at Gmail. Um, Art After Dark Podcast at oh, Gmail. Oh, yeah. I was like, wait, is that right? <laughs> and then Art After Dark Pod at Instagram and Facebook. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time. See you next time.